This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please know that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star reviews, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for the podcast are in the show notes. So, Isaac Komnenos has become Emperor Isaac I. He's ushered in, unbeknownst to him, the last great imperial dynasty in imperial Roman history, a lineage stretching back to Augustus Caesar more than 1,060 years. His reign kicked off on the highest note of any reign in recent history. The party throne and the procession into town might have even rivaled those of the legendary Emperor Basil II just 30 years earlier. But the empire was finally fully awake, its people desperate for change, and they now had it in spades with this quote-unquote crusty general who had devoted his life to the empire he loved way out on the dangerous and hostile fringes to the east. How will their imperial savior begin his glorious, long-awaited reign? There's a lot on the line here, and the people are not afraid to tell you when you mess up. How will Emperor Isaac I Komnenos handle this new role, arguably the role occupying the single most powerful and influential person on the planet at the time? Today's episode, episode 104, is entitled Isaac the First Komnenos. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. According to the records, Isaac Komnenos never wanted the gig of supreme ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire. He was certainly reluctant to accept it, but now that he was the emperor, he had work to do. It was now September 2nd, 1057, just one day after his unprecedented triumphal procession into the grand city of Constantinople. And by his side was a very lucky man, Michael Sellos. Isaac Komnenos was described by Sellos as an old, crusty general. However, 
Sellis himself has been described in other accounts, to use John Carr's words in his book, The Komneni Dynasty, as quote-unquote, tall, with attractive eyes and a pleasant smile. We can't forget that by 1057, Isaac was 50 years old, while Sellis was about a decade younger. The two were similar in so many ways, but appearances weren't one of them. Remember, Isaac had spent his entire adult life so far, at least, out battling in the far-flung reaches of the eastern borderlands, spending his days and nights out in the open air mostly, along with his men. While Selos was a learned monk, turned philosopher, turned courtier, turned prime minister to the emperor, you can rightly imagine the differences in each man's hands alone. John Carr writes of Sellis, quote, Historians agree that he was a most complex man. According to Basil Marquesinus, quote, His sense of where power was shifting was almost unerring. End quote. He was the Byzantine equivalent of a Borgia, of the Italian humanists of a later era, who questioned the traditional powers and privileges of the old aristocracy, who were beginning to be upstaged by a new aristocracy of commerce and wealth. Sellis represented the latter, a powerful force for change in late Roman society. End quote. Now he continues to describe My- Michael Sellis as uh, quote, Machiavellian, a largely unscrupulous realist whose dedication to state affairs was absolute, an unhesitating schemer when he believed it was warranted. To him, the eternal truths were to be found only in divinity and family values. Anything else was transient and worthy of manipulation in the overriding interests of the empire. End quote. This was the man. This was the man that Isaac I Komnenos, along with previous emperors Michael VI and Constantine IX Monomachus, had placed beside them. He was the consummate politician, but his counsel was also quite wise and respected, and Isaac would need as much help as he could muster during, the, during his reign, at the very least during the beginning parts. The world was changing all around them, though. Emperors were still being overthrown meaning stability across the Eastern Roman Empire was fickle at best. But the larger world was beginning to bang on Constantinople's doors as well. Carr reminds us what we, what we on this podcast have already learned so much about already. He says, quote, Western Europe was about to embark on what is conventionally known as the High Middle Ages, when feudalism as an economic system attained its apex, end quote. Now, no doubt feudalism was making its ascendancy, the relations between the wealthy elite and the poor at the bottom of the social, political, relig- religious, and economic hierarchies were ever devolving into a crude economic dictatorship of sorts. And this was all over Christendom, make no mistake there, though it really takes hold in France first. England was, for all intents and purposes, next through the Norman Conquest beginning in 1066, just nine years from when Isaac takes over. And then it began to spread to all parts of Europe. But Christian kingdoms in Iberia, Norman Italy and Sicily, and even as far west as Cappadocia, were implementing, excuse me, far east as Cappadocia, were implementing some version of Lord Serf economics, a trade-off of goods and support for protection and security. But it wasn't all a, you know, a, a Marxist wet dream of complaints. 
there was a lot of good to come out of feudalism too. Regardless of the outcomes, centuries from this point in history, there was a tussle for power and influence between the religious factions of Christendom and the political factions. Popes sparred more frequently and more seriously with kings and dukes and warlords than ever before, and one somewhat immediate result was, as Wallace Ferguson calls it, the Commonwealth of United Christendom. Basically, you mess with one, you mess with all. Well, at least if you're a pagan or a Muslim. Otherwise, with a little philosophical nuance, Christians could still wage war against Christians. Though all of this jostling about, Western Europe, from Dublin to Constantinople, through it all, they saw a massive surge in the establishment of universities. And they were successful, too. As the centuries wore on, they were one of the mainstays of the 11th century, all the way to the present. More specifically, a snapshot of Europe always does a mind good when learning history. So, here we go. In 1057 in England, remember, Edward II was still king, and Duke William was still embarrassing his French monarch across the, the, the channel. That conquest still had a solid nine years to come about when Isaac I Komnenos took the reins of Constantinople. El Cid was bouncing back and forth between Christian kingdoms and Muslim taifas for support, but he was firmly establishing himself as a precursor legend to the overall Spanish Reconquista against Muslim-controlled Iberia. We already know about Robert Giscard in southern Italy, who will begin to play a major part in this bend in the narrative, so keep an eye on that one. Hildebrand, a cardinal back in Rome, as Carr says, quote, was making a name for himself in the papal curia, strengthening the institution against the power of Roman nobles and the bumptious German rulers, end quote. In just two decades, the same Hildebrand would become Pope Gregory VII, a major reformer that will change the course of the continent forever. Henry IV was just seven years old as he was the ruler in name only of the Holy Roman Empire. For this reason, his kingdom of Germany was, you know, it was an anarchic cesspool of court intrigue, rebellions, sabotage, you name it. Matilda of Tuscany, down in, down in what we call Italy now, was only 11 years old in 1057, and she would grow up to play a very important role in a matter of a decade or so as well. But arguably, most importantly, certainly for Isaac I's new dynasty, was the birthday, the first birthday, I should say, of Isaac's nephew. Born just one year earlier, Isaac's brother John, who'd been by his side all of those years, even when they were, uh, they were with Basil II. His brother John had, had a son born to him, and this son's name was Alexius Komnenos. Remember it, folks. Trust me. In the Muslim world, which, unlike other places we've seen on the podcast, with the exception of Iberia, was squarely on the Byzantine radar, especially as of late. Things were coming to a head. Not only has the long-standing and quite prosperous Cordoba Caliphate in Iberia collapsed decades earlier, but the invasion out there had rippled across the Mediterranean and North African uh, cultures and trade routes. 
Cordoba was quickly replaced by Taifa states, and those were quickly overrun by the fundamentalist Almoravid dynasty, the one that El Cid began railing against in the 1050s and 60s. The Fatimid dynasty ruling in Egypt and centered in Cairo were actually quite pleasant places to be, all things considered. Cairo was a beacon of trade and commerce and learning, science, all of it, in the mid-11th century. However, further out east, a very dark cloud was slowly approaching from the northeastern horizon. This came in the form of a Turkish clan who had called themselves Seljuk Turks. The once prosperous House of Wisdom in Baghdad, the center of all learning in the world, arguably, was on a slow but steady decline. By the mid-11th century, it... It wasn't even a whisper of its former self, you could say. The, the Abbasid Caliphate, ruled by a man named Al-Qaim, was ripe for collapse. After 200 years of Arab Muslim rulers surrounded by thousands of elite Turkish troops, a group resembling the Roman Praetorian Guard or even the Byzantine Varangian Guard, they began, it began to take its toll due to insecurity, assassinations, a tightening grip from paranoid rulers, you know the drill. By 1057, Al-Qaim made the bonehead move to invite more Seljuk Turks into Baghdad to help quell conspiracies and to deal with his enemies harshly. It kind of sounds like how the Cordoba Caliphate fell or some of those Taifa kingdoms fell after the Cordoba Caliphate fell. Well, within one year, the Seljuk Turks led by their warlord Tugrul Bey, formally ended the Abbasid Caliphate in 1058, says Carr. Within one year of Isaac's ascendancy, the Seljuk Turks, from the expansive grasslands of Central Asia, would establish themselves as the single most dangerous enemy to not only the other caliphates around, but also of the Eastern Roman Empire. Seljuk Turks would masterfully use and bolster the already solid infrastructure of the Abbasid Caliphates all around the Middle East to move personnel, envoys, merchants, settlers, provocateurs into strategic positions. Cappadocia, with its high plateaus and vast grasslands, was a perfect facsimile of the lands they just left in Central Asia, and for a horse culture, this was absolutely key to their survival and success. They adopted Islam in place of their nature-based pantheon and in instantly earned the respect of the Arab population, whether through deed or through force. This was the world Isaac Komnenos inherited as emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, back in Constantinople, one of Isaac's first moves was to invite his longtime wife to his side. She was a prominent Bulgarian princess named Catherine, or Ekaterina, like we said in the last episode. This marriage proved to cement the Komneni clan as a preeminent family among all Byzantine families, which was a minor selling point in choosing him as their new emperor. But more importantly than that, Isaac sought to re-solidify his family's connections to one of Constantinople's most powerful, or two, excuse me, of Constantinople's most powerful families, the Dukas and Scleros families, which we've heard on the podcast already. And Ekaterina, or Catherine, was crucial in this. 
This he was all able to do quite quickly. With financial, political, and social support at his back, Isaac, Carr writes, quote, hardly stepped foot in the palace when he set to work feverishly putting the whole imperial house in order. Sellis tells us that he didn't even pause to change his battle-soiled clothes or take a bath. When night came, he didn't retire to the royal bedchamber that no doubt had been carefully prepared for him, but sat up by lamplight, poring over state business, end quote. His first official move as emperor came the very next day, his second full day on the job, September 3, 1057, when, as any general was well aware of, he did something about the soldiers slipping through the streets armed to the teeth, most likely inebriated with wine and victory, sliding in and out of the various brothels in the city. One simply cannot allow much of this, that's for sure. A little allowed the men who had just cheated death days before to blow off a little steam, but any more than a day or two of it, and things could quickly get out of hand. Especially if they weren't paid for their services and they found all their jollying around town had left them penniless. Bar brawls were inevitable with or without soldiers present, but when you add soldiers to the mix, things spiral out of control, and the destruction, and likely even death, certainly injury, left in the wake of such mismanagement of the military, leaves a nasty taste in the mouths of the people who had just welcomed you in. If Isaac didn't act soon, his reign could begin very, very poorly. Isaac publicly decreed his loyal soldiers to disband once they collected their pay, and he put them on a time limit when they could collect said payment. Either way, the army of rebellion was no more, and the city was within two days back to the status quo. This invariably showed Isaac I to be a just and capable ruler of people, not just soldiers, and the people sang his praises in the streets once more. Isaac was off to an absolutely stunning start. Now, Isaac wasn't just some general popping in and trying on the crown. It seemed that he generally had the people at heart, something his immediate predecessors weren't keen on, apparently. But this military emperor, so to speak, persona, was something he learned to exploit to his great benefit. Carr writes, quote, He honed his throne manner into a veritable art of political theater. Seated majestically on the gold cloth with his senators grouped submissively on either side, he would set his face into a thunder-browed mask while maintaining a complete silence that unnerved the senators. He spoke little but well, choosing his words with care, and often meaning more by what was unsaid. End quote. The appearance of the military general was enough to gain respect and maintain order in his presence, it seems. However, Carr continues, quote, In his private and relaxed moments, says Selos, he was pleasant and tolerant. End quote. Isaac Komnenos was a complex man, to be sure. Carr continued, quote, In his administration, Isaac can be fairly described as an obsessive workaholic. He was single-mindedly intent on clearing away decades of waste, inefficiency, and corruption as quickly as possible before age or political rivals could stay his hand, end quote. And we've heard a lot about the previous three decades since Basil II's death, 
But let's hear from Sellis himself as he describes the Eastern Roman political scene. It's telling beyond words, if you ask me, for a contemporary to be so critical of the situation. It must have been bad. He writes that it was, quote, a monstrous body with a multitude of heads, hands so many as to be beyond counting, its entrails festering and diseased, here afflicted with dropsy, there diminishing with consumption, end quote. I, too, know of some political institutions here in the 21st century who give off a facade of grandiosity and virtue, but are nothing more than bloated, ineffectual, corrupt, and institutions basically piloting themselves into an early grave. What's that old adage, times change but people don't? The good thing about that little sliver of wisdom is that we may, say, we, we may see governments turning into such beasts, but they inevitably, many of them anyway, have a strong people beneath them, ready to support the quote-unquote good guys who seek to improve their lot. Isaac I was clearly seen as that good guy, and within a week he had shown himself to be just that. The next big step he made was to clean up the rather corrupt bureaucracy that had bloated the empire, starved its people of income and resources and infrastructure, Within many kingdoms and empires a thousand years ago, but most especially the Byzantine court, were networks of very powerful eunuchs. And for those that don't know, a eunuch is a man who has had his, well, everything down there removed at an early age. Eunuchs, because of their lack of testosterone, of course, they didn't know that it was a hormone in those days, obviously, well, they were not as aggressive or corrupt as regular men. At least that's what was thought. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is that it was only a theory. And the truth is quite the opposite. Eunuchs were some of the more corrupt individuals in the palace, to be sure. And they certainly held an incredible amount of influence and power over others. I'm thinking of the character Varys in Game of Thrones, who was called the Spider, due to his vast webs or networks of informants he had, he had allowing him to blackmail anyone he wished to advance off of. The network of eunuchs in the Byzantine court in the 1050s was so large and so corrupt that it was on Isaac's priority list to be dealt with sooner rather than later. Carr writes, quote, By Isaac's time, the earthbound cherubim had assumed near control excuse me, near total control over imperial appointments and policy. One of his first acts was to strip the eunuchs of their more conspicuous powers and let everyone know that at last a real soldier was at the helm, end quote. The power of the eunuchs was now neutered. Oh, come off it. You would have said the same thing. Now, Isaac also immediately set out to read every single appointment and decree made by Michael VI, and systematically dismantle each and every one of them he found to be corrupt or against the well-being of the empire. This guy was cleaning house for real. Carr writes, quote, The emperor was like a battlefield surgeon for whom every case was an emergency. End quote. The nobility even felt the heat of his reforms in the form of increased taxes to offset the cost of his tax burdens for the, for the lower classes. 
The income wasn't used to grease any pockets either. Rather, the income was used to set about the refining, excuse me, set about refining the infrastructure initially of the roads in and out of the city. Also, he commissioned men to survey the city's defenses, something that hasn't been done in centuries. The walls of Constantinople were the stuff of legend in those days, and they still are today. But they were also centuries old at that point as well. Taxes for these reasons, excuse me, taxes for these things were also collected from monasteries and churches. Even the Hagia Sophia and Patriarch Michael Cerularius was in, was, was in Isaac's crosshairs. Isaac I and Michael Cerularius actually got into a public feud over the increased tax burden on the church. Remember, this was the same iron-skinned patriarch who stood his ground against Pope Leo IX's expulsion from the Catholic Church just three years prior. This was the same patriarch who helped Isaac plot against Michael VI. This was the same patriarch who not only supported Isaac's ascendancy a month or two earlier, but just days earlier, like a couple weeks, he crowned Isaac emperor of the realm. And Michael Cerularius was a long-respected anchor of Constantinople. Michael Cerularius, however, didn't know exactly how to read Isaac Komnenos, apparently, because when seeking audience with the emperor, he arrived wearing red footwear, the shade of red only used by emperors. The affront to Isaac's leadership was, Carr writes, quote, too much for Isaac, who packed Cerularius off to exile on Prokonosos, an island in the Sea of Marmara, where he died shortly afterwards. End quote. And thus the end of the patriarch Michael Cerularius. Who would become the next patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church in the wake of Isaac's corruption ridding reforms, you ask? Why? The one and only Constantine Lacutus, the close friend and confidant and fellow envoy to Isaac's rebel camp, mind you, and former advisor to Empress Theodora as well. Was Isaac trading one corruption for another? So Isaac set about fixing the empire for a couple years. It's pretty much the same stories over and over again in that time. He taxes and diverts public funds to their intended purposes. Someone gets mad about taxes. He deals with them. Rinse and repeat. However, after two years, in late autumn of 1059, Isaac had had about enough of the Pechenegs threatening revolt up north. Pechenegs went too far when they crossed the frozen Danube, which was Byzantine territory at the time. Granted, they were displaced, Carr tells us, by other nomads, but that was not Constantinople's problem. What was Constantinople's problem was that a large population of fighting-age men just crossed Byzantine borders. The old adage, your problem does not constitute my emergency, comes to mind. It was time to prove to everyone that Isaac still had his military mind fully intact. Isaac set out north to take on the dangerous Pechenegs. They rallied, they railed, all against Isaac's lines, but to no avail. Isaac and his soldiers held firm against the Pecheneg onslaught, and the Pechenegs just wore themselves out and turned around. Isaac followed them and found their camp deserted except for women and children. 
He left them, but took their treasures and, tur- and returned home. Carr writes, quote, On the return march, a violent storm caused some casualties, but Isaac entered his capital in triumph for the second time. But Carr, and of course originally Michael Sellos, reports that Isaac changed after the Pechenegg campaign. He changed. Words like haughty and autocratic were used to describe him after that point, and he began spending far more time hunting than he was running the empire. Perhaps he thought he'd led the empire to a nice, steady place. Perhaps he was exhausted and decided a vacation was necessary. Who knows? We only know that a change appeared in him, and before history would know if he would snap himself back out of it, Isaac got sick. Until next time.